Well, it's a timely place for us to be with in this portion of Scripture that speaks directly to the issue of face coverings, right? Uh, or head coverings, same thing, right? I walked in, we walked into our elder prayer time, and J.K. had his, head, his uh, face mask on his head, and he was just preparing for the service. He was dishonoring his head by doing that, I will say. <laughs> Clearly hadn't read the passage ahead, but... Uh, no, I was telling, we, we, we met as elders on Friday night in the Schauburg's basement, just play, praying again and talking about church and future, and, and I was telling the elders this, uh, then that I, I'd been thinking this week about what funny people we are when it comes to sermons and passages like this. Um, if I were preaching on the immutability of God or the ascension of Christ or something like that, I would be thinking, how can I, how can I keep and hold their attention lest some of them begin to nod off but you talk about women's headwear and you have everybody just like hanging on every word just eagerly sitting on the edge of their seat waiting to see what you're going to say and so it's a wish for funny people um, as we'll see this morning the passage is and is not about head coverings uh, th- that's the particular issue concern question in that Corinthian context, and you see it in verse 13, is it proper for a wife to pray to God in the assembly with her head uncovered? That's kind of the, 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 the overarching theme. And so, but the bigger issue that the passage is speaking to is this biblical view of, of male and female role relationships. And so God has created men and women equal in essential uh, being and dignity and and personhood and worth. We, we share that together equally, but we're different and complementary in functions and roles. That's the biblical teaching as we put Scripture together. And so there's, there's this what we call male headship in the home and in the church, and that's being understood as, as part of God's good and wise and beautiful design. And so men and women are equal in Christ, but they're distinct in that they have different, distinct, but complementary, not mutually exclusive, but, but generally different functions in those two realms of the family and the church. Sounds simple, right? Uh, but this view is obviously, it's ridiculed by many, if not most people in the culture, and it's even really denied in many evangelical churches today, particularly in the West. And so with that said, the question is kind of why bother even addressing this subject? Why why deal with a passage like this, with such a controversial text and topic in our, in our setting? And Howard alluded to some of this already. Why is it important to foster a, 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 a biblical understanding of manhood and womanhood in the family and in the church? And I'm kind of borrowing and adjusting some thoughts that I saw from Ligon Duncan on this matter of, of, of the why here. And so let me just give you three statements. One, it's never wise or safe to act unbiblically. Um, and what I mean, if the Bible speaks to an issue like this and we ignore it or we dismiss it, we can count on troubles in the church and in our families and in our marriages. Uh, and what I mean is, is God's design is always for our best. It's always for, our, for human flourishing. It's for our good. And so whenever we throw off or we tamper with his good design, we can expect uh, that, that difficulties are going to be inevitable. So that's one reason. Second reason, I think, why we need to face these and deal with this and address this is that the issue of, and of the nature of manhood and womanhood 
it's very much at the heart of this kind of cultural sea change we see taking place in the world around us. And we're, we're the world in which we live. And so there's confusion, confusion in some ways, and, and in other places just outright rebelliousness uh, in, in these areas of gender and human sexuality and, and male-female role relationships. And so these are, these are at the very heart of the struggle we see going on all around us. And again, you can just consider the headlines of this past week if you've been observant and, and, and expressed intentions, even from the White House, to, to normalize transgenderism in this country and around the world, really. And so these contemporary challenges, they're, only, they're really just symptoms of, of a much deeper problem, and that's this rejection of a transcendent, wise, good creator, a creator that we read in Genesis 2. And so, but these issues are important. I think they're kind of bellwethers to see what's coming in the culture. And so I think it's important to consider them. Third, denying, changing, or twisting the Bible's clear teaching on manhood and womanhood, it, it's one of the central ways in which the Bible's authority sort of becomes um, undermined in our own day. What I mean is this, is people don't generally say, well, the Bible's just wrong about uh, when it comes to these issues. What, what generally will happen is more something like this. They'll say, well, that's your interpretation. Uh, that's your understanding. You're, you're, you're just reading the Bible in a way that makes God's word out to be misogynistic and demeaning of women and discriminating against women. And, and, and if, you only, if you only understood the Bible correctly, you'd understand the Bible is not teaching this. But when you, when you do that with what the Bible teaches about uh, manhood and womanhood, you can pretty much make the Bible out to say say whatever you want it to say about because it's pretty clear on on these matters. Um, I'm not saying there's not difficulties in interpretation as we're going to see, but so for all those reasons and more, I think it's important for us to to give time to understand manhood and womanhood from God's perspective. I haven't seen anybody get up and leave yet, so. Uh, so we'll, we'll keep moving. So a few other just preliminary kind of general remarks before we dive into the text. And so these are kind of like instructions before takeoff. So I know you're used to, you know, tuning out the flight attendant. Sorry if you're a flight attendant here. Uh, but just listen to me for just a few more minutes, and then we'll, we'll get into the text. What do we need here as we, as we come to this passage and, and passages like this? First thing we need is a large dose of humility. Uh, we need humility um, when we come to a passage like this. This is a very difficult passage to interpret. Um, let me just read one commentator. This is the way he, she descri- he, he described it. He said, this passage is probably the most complex, controversial, and opaque of any text in the New Testament. Now, almost every commentary that I consulted, and I read a lot pre- preparing for this week, they said something along those lines. Um, and and the, because there's just this unusually large number of really challenging interpretive issues in, in just a, a handful of verses. And so you could fill a room with the amount of books and articles that are written on this passage with the full spectrum of views uh, on the particulars of this text. Not to mention the challenge in preaching it, let alone just studying it. So I'm not fishing for sympathy but I'm happy for it if you want to give it. Um, and no. But, but understanding, understanding this, I think it should just inspire a right kind of, kind of humble tentativeness 
as we approach a passage like this and walk through it. And so in that humility should spill over into charity towards others who, who might disagree on some of the particular parts. And so what you'll hear this morning reflects my best efforts, and you may be disappointed by that, but my best attempts to just prayerfully grapple with, the, with this passage and to try and weigh some of many of the interpretive and options before us and to bring some clarity as we sit together under the word of God. So this isn't sitting under Justin and his opinions. I just want, I want the word to speak to us today and just kind of get out of the way and see what God has revealed. And so, but I'm not ashamed to, to acknowledge at the outset that on some of the details, I may just be flat wrong. And I realize that. And so I may, I may realize that more as I go along. But so don't be spooked. This is good. God's word is good, and it's beautiful, and it's got wonderful treasures for us in these verses, and it directs our gaze to him, and it will be profitable, and it will be a delight to our souls. And so I'm not trying to scare you, but I just, we need humility. Second thing, we need to look for clarity. We need to look for clarity. There are little side paths of questions and, and some of these little tricky interpretive matters that, that can kind of lure us away from the from the main road, and we can begin to fixate on these uh, interesting but kind of fuzzy little tidbits and and little phrase, little word that, and so we can kind of get all snarled up about those things and lose sight of what's central and what's clear. And so I think the thing for us to remember in a passage like this is that the plain things are the main things. You get that? The plain things are the main things, and so we need to we need to think about that as we go through this. So let, let me just go ahead and relieve you of the expectation that. That, that Justin is going to answer all of your little questions about this passage. That's just not going to happen. We're not preaching a six-part series on this. We're, we're going we're gonna to kind of stick to that main road. We, we had our small group Wednesday night with the young adults in, this, in the church, and, and we walked through this passage together. I think another small group did this as well. And I just asked them to observe and ask questions of the text and kind of kind of sniff out some of these challenges, and they did a wonderful job and and, 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 and hit on most of these. And then I just kind of let them sit and stew over them and told them to go study. And so I just like rolled hand grenades in and then walked away. It was, it was wonderful. Uh, but even they, they're not going to get all of their questions answered this morning as we're here. Third, we need to acknowledge cultural disparity. Cultural disparity. There's a significant cultural gap between us and this Corinthian congregation. And time and culture and location. So some of the things that were very ordinary and normal and common, they seem very strange to us. You know, but of course, much of the things that are very normal to us would be incomprehensible to them. And so, so you just understand that there, there's significant overlap and that they're particularly at the level of principle, as we'll see, but the application of unbending biblical principles it, it, it will take various forms in different cultures. And so we, we have to look behind the particular cultural expression and, and, and see that always valid principle. That's what, that's what we're focusing on. So just an example of this in, in 1 Corinthians. At the very end of this study, uh, probably in April, we'll get to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 10, and Paul gives this firm apostolic commandment to, to Christians, all Christians in the church, what? Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, and he repeats the command in Romans, in 2 Corinthians, in 1 Thessalonians. 
Peter repeats the command in 1 Peter. And so of five of the 27 New Testament books, we have this clear apostolic command that we're to greet one another with a kiss. Now, and yet, in our elder prayer meeting this morning, I didn't see a single elder come in and plant a big smacker on another man's cheek. Uh, yes, exactly, yuck. Um, and that's not because of COVID. This is, this is, I've never seen that. And I don't want to see it either next week. God, just, just giving you a heads up. Um, we don't kiss each other at church, even though the Bible commands us to kiss each other. Why? Because we recognize that in that ancient Near Eastern culture, the kiss was a perfectly normal and acceptable way to greet one another. And it still is in some cultures today, some places. But it's not in our culture. And I know some of us get a little queasy with that thought of it happening on a Sunday gathering here. So, so we obey this verse, maybe with a handshake or maybe right now an elbow bump or something like that. And, and, and we understand that the abiding principle is this, is you greet and receive one another with love, with affection, with brotherliness and sisterliness. That's, that's what he's saying. It's not the precise expression of love that matters. That can change from culture to culture and century to century. But just imagine, just imagine, maybe another way to illustrate this, if Paul was writing to this local congregation like he was writing to that church in Corinth, or the church on Corinth Road, if he was writing to us today about COVID response. And so I'm not suggesting what he would say, so please don't go down that little trail in your mind, and we're not choosing sides here, but, but he might use words in that, whether he's for or against, things like social distancing and mask wearing, and might talk about flattening the curve or, or uh, you know, herd immunity or something like that. And he would, he, he would use those phrases, and we, we would hear that if we read his letter. We would understand exactly what he was talking about. We know that lingo. It's, it fits our context. We, we hear those words all the time. We, we, we can see it. We know exactly what he's talking about. But what if somebody read that letter 200 years from now or 2,000 years from now? They, they'd read those words and they'd say, what in the world is this about? What are they talking about? What was going on there at this time? And so there would be no doubt principles that would come through and we'd be able to easily discern some of those clear principles, those abiding principles, and he would speak to us, but, but to, to be able to reproduce and to grasp the exact situation would be virtually impossible. And that's the case, I think. As we read this almost 2,000-year-old piece of mail, this letter to the Corinthians, we, we can piece together some of what's happening based on historical sources, but let's be honest, it's very difficult to know exactly what was happening and and what everything meant in that culture. Um, and so we're mainly focused on those abiding principles. That's what we're, we're going to be focusing on. So let me just say, related to that third thing that we need to do as we come to the text, it's important that while we can and should apply this passage, and it does have all kinds of application in our present context, and so we, 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 we apply it to our situation, but we don't interpret the passage through our present situation. There's a big difference. So, for instance, it speaks to issues that we face today, like gender and sexuality and feminism and, and on and on and on. Absolutely. But we probably need to be careful that we don't just read into the text our present struggles, that there was maybe this, this feminist faction in the church at Corinth, like we think in categories today. We just have to be careful there. All right. 
Let's jump in the text. And so, so he's beginning this new section of his letter. We've, we've been studying 1 Corinthians since last March, April, something like that. We took a, took a couple months off here uh, at the end of November, and, and, and we're just now picking it back up. So we're in this new section that's going to take us all the way through chapter 14. And, and it's this extended section dealing with a whole array of issues related to public worship in the church, to the corporate gathering. And so they probably asked the, the, the Corinthian church, they probably asked him some questions about some of these matters. Paul probably heard reports about things that were happening in Corinth that concerned him. And so he's addressing those concerns in, in this section. So he's, he's going to talk about the Lord's table later in this chapter. He's going to deal with you know, issues of Christian unity in the fellowship and spiritual gifts and, and just general order in worship. And so, but here at the beginning of the section, he's addressing how men and women worship together. And one, one, other, one other comment, another, another flight attendant announcement here, is that this passage is misread and misunderstood if you only take this as being some kind of restrictive message to women. That's not what this is. This, this passage, it, 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 there, yes, there's to be order in our gatherings, and, and that includes order between, in relationships between men and women, husbands and wives, but there is wonderful freedom too. We'll see this, but the, the, the freedom that was afforded to female worshipers in the church, it was honestly scandalous in that culture. That's part of the issue. Verse 5 makes it clear. Women were permitted and encouraged to pray and prophesy in these gatherings. We'll talk about 1 Corinthians 14, 34 in a few weeks, if you know what that verse says. But that's not saying women are just to be seen and not heard in the assembly. That's not it. In the the Christian church, women are to be full congregational participants in our worship gatherings. And, and I hope that that's experienced here. We should go out of our way to encourage women to use their gifts to the fullest in every, every setting that's open to them, according to Scripture. And so there's, there's wonderful freedom in the worshiping assembly for men and women in, in, in churches and in families, but this is what we see here. It's ordered freedom. It's ordered freedom. Freedom and order are not contradictory to one another. And I think that will be clear as we walk through this. All right, so as Paul's done in other places, so look at verse 2. This is really where the kind of the new section begins. He's done this in other places in this letter, particularly when he's talking about matters of liberty. He uses this kind of yes, but logic, and he does it here too. So in verse 2, he praises them for, for their faithfulness to his teaching. Look, that they maintain the traditions even as Paul delivered those traditions to them. So these traditions, they're faithful to maintain these traditions. Now, we heard traditions, we think Thanksgiving traditions, Christmas traditions. This is what we always do every year. We decorate gingerbread houses or whatever. Um, you know, it's kind of family customs that are passed on from generation to generation, that kind of thing. That's not what Paul's talking about here with traditions. Um, traditions have to do with this body of apostolic teaching that's being passed along. For example, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul urges the Thessalonians to to stand fast, to hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So these traditions, they're they're inspired, they're authoritative, apostolic instructions that are passed down, passed along. 
We, we now have access to them in the New Testament scriptures. Those are, these are the traditions. And so, yes, they've been faithful to this teaching, probably about matters of freedom and liberty. And he says in verse 3, but, but, they've carried some things too far. Yes, it's true that men and women are equal in Christ before God, but that doesn't mean that all differences between men and women should be blurred in the assembly. The, 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 clear, the exact situation, the, the events behind verses 3 to 16, they're, they're not, again, as I said earlier, they're not perfectly clear to us. We don't know, and I know some, some have made very dogmatic statements. This is exactly what was going on, but I, I don't think we can discern that, and I don't think it's essential that we, we decipher that. But as best I can tell, it's probably something like this. Because of their newfound freedom in Christ, women gifted women in the Corinthian church were praying and prophesying and worship gatherings and that's wonderful verse 5 from Pentecost on this practice was normal it fit in Paul's own emphasis on freedom but some of the women were, were not merely speaking in worship but were doing it in a way that apparently unnecessarily flaunted social convention and biblical order and so in particular, some women were letting go of the, of the very common cultural practice of wearing a head covering of some sort during worship, particularly when they led prayer and prophesied. I know for us, we hear that and we're like, there's nothing scandalous about an uncovered female head in worship. That doesn't, that doesn't have any cultural force at all in our day, does it? So this is our, this is our struggle as we look in on this. But it did communicate something in that culture. Something that was concerning to Paul. Um, so Paul writes and encourages them to exercise restraint. Remember in chapters 8 through 10, we saw this so often, that, that our knowledge must be tempered by love. I think there's something like that going on. So freedom, yes, but ordered freedom. Ordered freedom. And so to help us navigate this passage, to, to help us navigate this kind of tricky matter, we need some beacons, and that's kind of, that's how our outline will work this morning. That's how I want us to think. And so, uh, you know, we, we need those directional beacons. So imagine you're navigating a ship through a, a, a rocky channel and shallow waters, and you, you need those beacons. You're going beacon to beacon, and that's what we're going to do. If we keep our sight on the bright lights in this passage, the, main thing, the plain things are the main things, right? Then, then we can navigate this kind of, this channel successfully, safely, and we will see beautiful and wonderful sights along the way. And, and we will... We will enjoy this together. But, so there's no 15-point outline this week. You can all take a, take a breath there. Just, just five beacons to help us, help us kind of see and understand and navigate how, how men and women are equal in personhood and yet different in role in the church and in the home. First beacon is this. Five words start with B. Behold. Behold. We see this in verse 3. And there's what? Behold God. See God, if you want to know what the beauty and the goodness of ordered freedom looks like, look to God, your triune God. The, the way that men and women relate to one another in the church and in the home, it is in, in, in this essential equality, but yet different in roles, that's rooted in Trinitarian order. How the, how the Father, Son, Spirit relate to one another. So in verse 3, this is the most important verse in this morning's passage, and we're going to spend 
a good chunk of our time here. Here is where Paul lays down the fundamental principle. This is where he directs our gaze to God. As he says in verse 3, but I want you to understand. He's not trying to confuse us. Let me just make that clear in this text. He, he wants us to understand something. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Head. We understand physically what we're talking about. When it's used metaphorically, what does he mean by head? He means authority. Authority. And there are some that try to get around this by saying head means source or something like that, like the head of a river or something like that, not, not authority. But there is virtually zero linguistic evidence to support that understanding of this word head. And when it's ever it's used metaphorically in any literature, ancient Greek literature, between persons, it's always used to speak of authority. So I, that, that's not our out. We're speaking of head. The head, the the head of every man is Christ. Christ has authority over every man. Now, the word used for men here in this, in, at the beginning of verse 3, it's, it's not the word specifically for a male. It's just the general word for person. Men, women, humanity. Every single person, all humanity, is under the headship, the authority of Christ. That's what he's saying. But he goes on. The head of a wife is her husband. What says the wife, the husband has this authority over his wife. He is her head in that sense. Though some of your translations, uh, like if you're using the New American Standard, say something like the the man is the head of a woman or something like that. Because man and husband, it's the same word in the Greek. This is not the same word that we saw earlier in verse three, but. Woman, wife, same word. So, so the, the translators, they have to, they, 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 they're interpreting as they translate this passage. Now, I think that Paul's primary focus is the way that married women conduct themselves in the worship gathering. So I think wife is probably the better translation here. Don't, okay. But it, it's, it's in the realm of the home and of the church where this differentiation and roles really is applied in the New Testament. It's not applied universally everywhere in all spheres of life. So all men are not the heads of all women. All women don't have to submit to all men or anything like that. We're just saying men and women are different, but the headship, that authority of men is only applied in the home and the church in the New Testament. So I, I'm, t- I'm sticking with the, the reading in the ESV here. But even still, that's a, cult, that's a horribly offensive thing to hear, isn't it, in our context, our culture, for most people. If you really want to so- start a social media firestorm, just go out and tweet that this afternoon. Uh, especially if you use the New American Standard, but either, really. Um, it is, nevertheless, it's this clear teaching of Scripture concerning the relationship of men and women in the family and in the church. And so Ephesians 5.22, we see this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. What? For the husband is, same language, the head of the wife. Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. First Peter 3.1, Wives, be subject to your own husbands. But doesn't that imply then that, that the woman, the wife, is then inferior to her husband? Is less than. Not at all. Not according to the very next thing Paul writes. What does he say next? The head of Christ is God. Meaning God the Father is in this place of authority over Jesus. He's the head of Christ. 
The differentiation, though, has zero to do with being, with, with ontology, with essence. In other words, God the Father and God the Son, they are, they are perfectly equals when it comes to being and value and worth. They are both fully God. They're equal in Godness. The Father is not, you know, 100% God, and Son's 99.999999%. No, they're, they're fully God. They're equal. They share the same nature. They're co-eternal. Jesus is not inferior to the Father in the slightest way. But he does willingly submit to the Father's authority. Theologians call this ontological equality and economic subordination. What that just means, it's equality in, in essential being, but, but this subordination in role and function. So this is amazing. That the very pattern of authority and submission in marriage and in, in the church, is, it's rooted in the Trinity. It, when a husband leads his wife and a wife submits to her husband, together they are glorifying the triune relationships within the Godhead pointing to that. It's a witness to it. This makes it clear that submission in human relationships, whether in marriage or in the church or in any other realm of life, it doesn't equal to or even hint at inferiority. And headship doesn't equal to or hint at superiority. That's one of the fallacies, I think, of the modern feminist theology. That for people to be equal, they must do the same thing. But you can have differentiation and authority in relationships without having any inferiority or superiority in dignity or value or worth. That's Paul's premise here. We, just to illustrate this, uh, we visited the Bells this week to go see the baby. And I was chomping at the bit to get over there and see the little Piper and, and uh, what a cutie she is and a little sweet thing. And I was thankful to be able to do that. And, and what a precious family and kids. I hope I'm not going to embarrass them now, but I'm going to take that risk. Um, but just imagine, I, this is hard to imagine, but imagine I'm there and maybe one of the older kids is, is just really acting up. I mean, like outright rebelliousness as we're there visiting. It's little Caroline. This really scratches our heads and we're like trying to imagine what this will look like. I know, it's a sweet little girl. Um, but, 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 this is all happening as we're visiting there. In that context, if that were to happen, and it didn't at all, but if that were to happen, I fully understand and, and am aware of the fact that I am not the authority over those children. I, I, Devin and Jacqueline have the authority. It would be, it is not my place to take the lead in the discipline of, of their children, for instance. But does that mean that I in any way feel inferior to Devin and Jacqueline? And, 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 and uh, no, there's no contentiousness, there's no competitiveness in that, in that situation, in that relationship. I'm not saying this is a one-to-one -one comparison, so don't you know, press this too far, but I'm just as, as an example to show that authority and submission, it doesn't, it doesn't mean superiority or inferiority. It's not, that's not it. It's not a degrading thing to be under someone's authority. It doesn't mean you're less than the other person. It doesn't mean that you're not worth as much. We all have areas where we're in authority and areas where we're in subordination. That's, we all have that, every single person here in some realm of life. 
and, and, and it applies widely. But in marriage, headship doesn't mean husbands have greater dignity or intelligence or ability or worth or purpose than their wives uh, or men than women. No, not at all. And we know this, again, because of equality and differentiation that's in that relationship within the triune Godhead. This is what he's rooting the whole thing in here. Uh, you see this. Now, let me just, this is an important thing, I think, a little side trail. Is this ever misunderstood and misapplied and distorted? Yes. Yes. Tragically so. Tragically so. Those that on the surface seem to have a right theology of, of these matters have, have horrif horrifically abused these passages. Some husbands want to treat headship as this badge of superiority. That's a terrible misuse of this text. Some men do this. Sexism is real. And we shouldn't deny that. They, but people, they take, take authority to mean this dictatorial dominion. In, the, in this license to display some kind of chauvinistic machismo or something like that in the home or in the church or in other realms of life. At worst, wicked distortions of this teaching have been used to justify or excuse abuse, domestic abuse, verbal abuse, physical, emotional, sexual abuse in the home. Now, I, I just want to say unequivocally, that scripture condemns any of that. Violence, threats, intimidation, any of that in the family or the church. Paul explicitly commands husbands to love their wives, to, 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 to not be harsh with them, Colossians 3.19. So I just want to urge anyone who's, who might be affected, and many people are, by domestic abuse, whether it's women, men, children, that, that, that to seek help from those that are qualified to provide it. And that might be law enforcement, that might be a counselor, that might be a social worker at school, uh, teacher, pastor, seek help. All right, so I just want to be really clear on this. But, but rather than, but what Paul's doing here and the way he starts, he's rather than looking horizontally at the distortions, what he does is he, he directs us up to look up, to see God, see him as this ordered freedom and all of its beauty, this essential equality in person, this distinctiveness in roles, loving authority, willing subordination. That's what exists within God. And so authority submission, it's not a bad thing. It's a good, it's a godly thing. It's this beautiful, beautiful thing to be celebrated. All right, so far so good, right? All right, so Paul lays out this fundamental principle. And what it, now what does this look like in the church? And that's the second Second thing, that's what the whole section's really about. How does it show up in our gatherings? So this is the second beacon, and, and just the word behave. Behave, dealing with behavior. So verses 4 to 6, so we're to live out, we're to behave in line with this ordered freedom when, within the worshiping assembly, within the gathering. And so in verses 4 to 6, we begin to see what the actual issue was there in Corinth, and, and, and this is what prompts Paul to write concerning these matters. And so... He says in verse 4, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a, man, if, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. What in the world is going on here? <laughs> 
No, I'm serious. What's no? <laughs> the plain things are the main things. Remember that? So Paul is describing corporate worship on a Sunday morning in Corinth, basically. This is what he's picked up on. And in prophetic fulfillment of Joel 2, men and women praying, prophesying in the corporate gathering, wonderful. Now, what's behind this is clearly in that day, in that time, that location, there were, there were culturally appropriate ways of expressing gender differences in the home and in the church. And these were known to Paul. They were known to the Corinthians. It's a little less clear to us. We get some indications. But for men to pray and prophesy with a head covering or for women to pray and prophesy without their heads covered, it showed, it, it showed apparently some, some level of disregard for the distinct roles of men and women in the context of the church and home. That's, what's, that's kind of the essence of what he's saying here. What was the head covering? It's honestly, it's not really that important, and we honestly can't know with 100% accuracy. It was probably some kind of veil. You know, it could be a hat, it could be a shawl, it could be a, uh, a, I mean, probably some kind of shawl. Uh, it could be a, you know, full veil. Some say it's hair or hairdo. I, I don't know for sure. I, I think it's probably some kind of shawl of some kind that was common at the time. But whatever it was, some women were throwing off, literally, normal gender distinctions in a way that was shameful. That's, you notice that word. You see this emphasis on disgraceful, shameful, dishonor. And, and that shame-honor culture, this is big. And again, we're so far removed from that, it's hard for us to understand. But, but it, was, it was wrong in this way. And so her head is dishonor. Her head, probably double meaning there. Her self and her head being her husband, just like the man himself and head, Christ. Paul basically says, if, if, if you're going to show this kind of disregard, just go all the way and shave your head off. Shave your hair off. And that was the kind of the height of disgrace in that culture, particularly for women. Now, in our culture, if a woman wears a head covering to a church, no one thinks, oh, she's married and must be living joyfully under the loving authority of her husband. No one thinks that. They probably think, why in the world is she wearing that thing on her head? Um, and, and, and so I'm, I'm not sure in, all, in our culture that we have a single piece of clothing, an article of clothing that functions as a cultural equivalent to the first century head covering. And that's part of the challenge for us, isn't it? We don't have anything like this. We don't have a garment that, garment that indicates, I am a woman. I'm happy to be a woman. I accept God's order in relationships between men and women. But there are things, there are things probably that people do in terms of dress and behavior to deliberately blur those differences and defy those differences between women and men. And that's essentially what Paul's concerned about here. Our culture's quite eclectic, though, more so than theirs. Um, we, there, there's no one way of dressing. There's no one look that, that you know, says it all. But in, the, in a way that makes sense in our culture, we should avoid as best we can, blurring distinctions between women and men by what we wear, how we act, particularly in the assembly, particularly for husbands and wives. That's, I think, kind of the main thing that Paul's saying here. So the first beacon, behold, behold the, the beautiful, ordered freedom within the Godhead. Second, behave. We're, we're to behave in the assembly in a way that's consistent with our roles and responsibilities as men and women and husbands and wives, content with that ordered 
relationship that God has ordained. Third beacon, because. Because. He, he goes on to tell us why. You see that little word, beginning of verse 7, for, or because. He's giving us some reasons. He's laying out this defense for a, for a kind of ordered freedom in the church between husbands and wives, men and women. So the first exhibit, exhibit A, is creation. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, we've entered another minefield of, of uh, political incorrectness here, haven't we? <laughs> On verse 7, let's just be real clear up front. Paul's not saying that, that men bear the image of God, women don't. That's not it at all. He knows Genesis 1 to 2 very well. He knows what we read earlier. He, he, men and women are both image bearers of God because they're fully human beings. They're, they have full personhood. And in that sense, they're equal and both worthy of, of, of image-bearing dignity. And so that's not it. But, but Paul's going to the creation story. He's going here, as, as, and, and as a matter of simple historical and scriptural record, this is what he's saying, Adam was created first. And woman was created from him, from Adam, to be a helper to him, and therefore she became his glory. She was his honor. She was the, his, we say, his better half, we might say. The, his, the glory was not in himself, but in her. The glory of man is not looked for in the man. The glory of man is looked for in his complement, in the woman. That's, that's what, he, what the text is saying. And so the simple point Paul's making here is that, the, that a wife was created to be a husband's helpmate. She was made from him and for him. Now, when she says for him, that's not to say that, that, that women were made as playthings for men. Uh, there's, again, one of the great distortions of, of this passage. Domestic servants are just to be the mother of their children or, or their children or something like that. It means she was made for his sake. He was, she was made, uh, her purpose was to help him. He needed her. He was incomplete without her. That's what the text is saying. That's that's why we have this first. It was not good for man to be alone. He needed the woman, and the woman was created to be a, a partner, a colleague, a, a, a co-worker with the man. They're not enemies. They're not opponents or adversaries. They're not independent of each other, as we're going to see. So, but what Paul's showing is that God has hardwired role relationships into creation itself. The head covering at that time was simply a, a culturally normal way of acknowledging and embracing this, this beautiful creation pattern in the worship gathering. That's why it was an issue. So to reject it in that context would have been to express a rejection of God's creation design. So that's the first thing. Exhibit A, creation. Second exhibit, angels. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Can I be honest with you? I have no idea what because of the angels means. I'm, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that, but I, I, I have wrestled with this all week and have read all kinds of things about this. I'm in good company because there were other commentators. Other, there, there, I, I read one New Testament scholar who said this. And then Paul adds those famous words, because of the angels. Now you ask me, what does that mean? And I tell you, same thing I said, I have no idea. I know that it has something to do with continuing Paul's argument, but I have no idea what it is. Ask me in another 10 years, and maybe I'll have a good answer. Now, he wrote that about 15 years ago, and I don't think he's updated it. Um, but 
but, he, but maybe Paul conceives of angels being present with, with, the, with the people of God when they gather like this on the Lord's Day. And that's a beautiful thought, isn't it? We have these unseen uh, angels all around us joining with us as we adore the Lamb who's redeemed us. So maybe just in light of that, we, just, that we, that, that we need to see ordered freedom in our gatherings. I don't know. There, there are half dozen or more possibilities here, and I'm not settled on any single one of them. I, but, but I don't know. All right, moving on. Exhibit C, nature. Because of the angels, nature. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach that you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. All right, more challenges. I don't think the issue here is relative hair length, scissor length of, of hair. He's not commanding hairstyles or hair length. That's not the point. I think what he's telling us is that nature nature it's proper and nature teaches us that there's a clear distinction between men and women intuitively people know men and women are different and should look different we understand that those differences are have, have their foundation in the very created order and so every culture though has these indicators for things that are masculine for things that are feminine feminine we we understand this and i think that's his point is is we we understand what's proper what's what's right context. You should. You should be able to judge for yourselves. Exhibit D. Other churches. Verse 16. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice nor do the churches of God. This is what he's saying essentially here, I think. If you want to argue about if you want to argue with me about this, you can. I'm not I'm speaking as Paul, not me. Don't argue with me about this. But if you want to argue with me about this, you can. But all the other churches agree with me on this issue. And you should too. If, there, if, if, you, if you Corinthians, you persist in this in your assemblies, you just need to know you're the ones out on a limb. You're in the minority here. This is not what other churches are doing. And Paul's saying you, we're to align ourselves with the patterns and the practice of, of the whole church, of the people of God. And that's, that's an important one. All right. So because. Behold, behave, because. Fourth beacon, be careful. Be careful. You may have noticed I skipped over verses 11 and 12. Um, in verse 11, it seems, seems what Paul's doing is like a wise shepherd. He's, he's anticipating a problem that could arise if his words are pressed a little too rigidly. So verse 11, he says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, the woman, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man or man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. He's constantly directing them back to God. And so while Paul has emphasized the distinctive roles of men and women in the home and in the church, there's also profound interdependence and mutuality in that relationship. And he's highlighting it here. This is an, a very important qualification he makes because, as we talked about earlier, sinful men can be uh, selfish and sensitive bullies. We have that reputation, and we've earned it. Um, and not saying all are, but, and, and you could see how some could take the structure of creation and use it to intimidate um, and lord that over women. And it happens. And instead of women being fulfilled under that headship of the man, she's oppressed, she's kept down. 
That's happened throughout history. That happens today. That happens in evangelical churches. Selfish men who take one strand of biblical teaching and they make it the clo- this cloak that they wear for their own selfishness and wickedness and pride. It's dangerous. Can't happen. So Paul puts, puts in here this balancing restriction. He's, he's, he says we're not talking here about human tradition or, or brute force. We're, we are new men and women are new creatures in Christ. We live together in this mutual interdependence. We need each other. We belong together. We, we value each other. We respect one another. We depend on one another. We are not adversaries. It's as if Paul's thinking here of kind of the this male chauvinist who's strutting around, you know, pounding his chest, saying, hey, you know, to women, we, we're heads over you because we came first. Yeah, you get that? We came first. This is like board game night, isn't it? Do you hear conversations like this last night? No. Um, and Paul says, hey, listen, friend. I'll, I'll take you to a certain lady, and I'll bring you face to face with her, and I dare you to say to her, we came first. And the person I'm going to take you to is your mama. <laughs> the man is born of woman. <laughs> yes, woman came from man. Man is born of woman. This, this is puncturing the, this balloon of male superiority. It, it sets the doctrine of male headship in this beautiful, balanced context here in verses 11 and 12. This, this one, there's wonderful complementarity in this relationship. Headship, yes. Equality, yes. Mutual interdependence, yes. Last beacon, and then we're done. And it's this, it's believe. Believe. Have you noticed as we've walked through this passage a distinct gospel pattern here? It may not be obvious because of all these little, you know, distracting confusion points, but this is 1 Corinthians. Remember, we go back to where we started in 1 Corinthians. We're, we're thinking about everything, every aspect of life through the lens of the gospel. So there's no surprise that Paul would... Paul would see this matter of men and women in the church and home through the lens of the gospel. And that's what we see here. It's, it's subtle, perhaps, but it's there, and it's, it's really what's behind everything. You notice, particularly in verse 3, which is the main verse in this whole section, and where is our attention really drawn? Notice, notice in the way that it's, it's, not, it's, not, um, uh, it's not this the, the, the sequence of those statements that surprises us, but what happens in that verse? On, on either side of the husband relationship, husband-wife relationship, what, who's there? Christ. Christ. Christ is put forth as the one we look to. In particular, we're drawn to the cross of Christ, and I'll show that to you. Jesus is the one that heads, husbands, men, have to look to for understanding what sacrificial, loving, leadership, headship, authority looks like. He's the head of his bride, the church. He leads his people with tenderness and compassion. He suffers and dies for her. This is what Ephesians 5 tells us. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus leads us, men, by suffering for us, dying for us, humbling himself for us, going to the cross for us, always thinking of our eternal good. Husbands, look to the cross. Look to the cross. Look to Christ. Trust Him for grace to forgive you when you fail. And we always do. We often do. Trust Him for the grace to enable and empower you to obey today. 
So as men, we look to Christ. That's what he's drawing our gaze. And women, wives, you're also invited. You're called to look to Christ and the cross. Notice this. Jesus isn't just the one who lives as the head of humanity. He's the one who lives under a head, the Father. His life is one of humble submissiveness to the Father. He's not the, he, he, or he is the perfect example of humble submission. And so you're thinking, yeah, but you don't know who I'm married to. He's a, he's a knucklehead most of the time. That's putting it mildly. It, it, would not, it wouldn't be hard to submit to God the Father. He's full of love and grace. True. Father is full of love and grace. But what do we find? The Father asks Jesus to die. Isaiah 53. Just to summarize, we know that Jesus was smitten by God and afflicted. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. This is not a light thing for Jesus to place himself under willing submission to the Father. That's what was behind Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Terrified him. Yet, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Listen, no matter how difficult your marital situation may be, and it may be enormously difficult, and I'm not minimizing that at all, your challenge to respect the spiritual leadership of your husband is trumped by the challenge of Jesus submitting to the will of his heavenly father when it meant dying. So Jesus, men and women, husbands and wives, both of us looking to Christ together, trusting him together, that's beautiful. That's ordered freedom that should be should thrive in homes and in churches. That's the way it's designed. And notice it isn't it interesting that both men and women are called, what, to die to self in our relationships as we relate to one another, mirroring that eternal, heavenly, holy trinity. He's not just our example. He is our substitute. He, we look to him. We trust him. We trust him for today even. Let's pray. Father, in our own strength, we will utterly fail at this. We do. It cuts the grain of every self-centered molecule in our being to live like this. But you can help us. So you can give us the grace to, to, to do this. So we, we say, Lord, command what you will of us and give what you command of us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.